Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name is Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Climate Power 2020 Senior Director of Communications, Lauren French. Lauren French, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. For those who aren't familiar with Climate Power and its work, can you explain why the organisation was started and what it's doing here to tackle this important issue of climate change? Absolutely. It's our view that 2020 is the make or break election for climate action. Quite literally, if we don't make changes to how the government and Congress and our, our country approaches climate change and the climate crisis, it will be too late. We're already living with this devastation. So the 2020 election is incredibly important. And our purpose is to change the politics of climate. For so long, it's been really regulated as a side issue, something that maybe liberals care about and maybe young people care about, but not something that is a driving, motivating voting factor. And we know that's no longer the case. Polling shows that 71% of voters want candidates and their leaders to have bold climate action plans, but that's not necessarily being talked about as much. And it's not necessarily the go-to thought of when people are thinking about what's the voting block, the voting world gonna look like in 2020. Climate isn't at the top of the list, but it should be because so many swing voters, Republican-leading suburban women, youth voters, which we know is going to be an incredibly important voting bloc, and voters of color rank this among one of their top issues. So we're here to really inject climate into the conversation for the 2020 election to make sure that candidates and candidates across the political spectrum know that voters want to hear from them their bold climate policies and what they plan to do. With climate change being ranked as such an important issue among these voting blocs that are only going to become more important, more influential, why do you think politicians have continued to kick this issue into the long grass, pushing it to a point where there is damage that has been done today that cannot now be undone, even though we can stop further damage? there is already damage that it's too late to rectify. So why have politicians taken this arguably reckless approach to the environment when if this was uh, any other issue, like, say, a financial crash, they would have acted immediately? I think that for so long, politicians and elected leaders didn't necessarily feel as if the people were with them on climate action and that it was an issue that was so important to everyone. So when you're looking at our government and making transformative, bold changes, you have to really feel a groundswell of support uh, or a, like you said, a financial crisis, a really pressing issue. 
And despite the fact that this is without a doubt one of the biggest global threats to our health, to our future, to our economy, I'm not sure politicians really ever did feel that, which is why we're here. We're really going to make sure they understand that voters want bold climate action because they understand if we don't do something right now, and this is not hyperbole, we literally are going to start facing deadly consequences. They're already frontline communities black, brown, and indigenous uh, families and communities who are facing the deadly consequences. We're going to see our economy just really fall to pieces if we don't start investing in clean energy jobs. And we want to make sure that everyone, candidates, Democrats, Republicans, are feeling that pressure so they know this isn't something to pay lip service to. They have to get serious. They have to pass and commit to bold climate action. Climate Power has stated that quote, every issue is a climate issue. How ingrained is this issue of climate change in the issues that communities face on a day-to-day -day basis? And do you think people truly understand to what extent climate change is impacting issues that they might have never thought to associate with this? Absolutely. I think the people who are living it really truly understand that our responsibility is to make sure that people who might not be living the actual consequences of climate change just yet, or who might not have the worst consequences of it, understand it. But let's talk about how climate change is absolutely an issue everywhere. It, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind because of the really uh, overwhelming movement for Black Lives Matter that we've been seeing really throughout the years, but in intensity since the murder of George Floyd, that the intersection of climate justice and racial justice. It is not at all um, a stretch of the imagination to see how much climate change is hurting communities of color right now. Look at asthma rates, look at cancer rates, look at the fact that you can compare two neighborhoods, one that's primarily African-American or Hispanic and one that's primarily white, and because of redlining laws from 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, more African-Americans live near oil and gas refineries and therefore are subject to the pollution because of those refineries than their Caucasian and white counterparts. So you're seeing not just climate in terms of pollution or rising water or melting ice caps, while all of those are so important, you're seeing it in little kids having increased rates of asthma and increased rates of cancer. You're seeing it in that uh, in Flint, Michigan, while this was not necessarily a climate issue, it's a water rights access issue, which is still so important, but people don't have access to clean water and clean water and clean air should be a right for all, not a privilege for the wealthy few. Uh, and that's not living the case. Talk about it in terms of uh, black maternal health. A really, really comprehensive study came out in July, and it was uh, reported on in the New York Times, that climate change is contributing to low birth rates among black women. Uh, that is, has substantial impacts on mental health, on health, on the black community. And that's directly related to climate change. So you can't talk about health. You can't talk about racial justice without bringing in the impacts of climate. And you cannot talk about our economy without talking about what climate change is, one, doing currently to our economy, but what investing in green 
uh, infrastructure and clean jobs would do. That would create good paying, stable jobs that will last 20, 30, 40 years, unlike old energy jobs, which are not going to be around forever and are not necessarily stable and are causing health impacts for the people who are working in them. So we need to rethink how we're investing in green energy and a green economy, because that's how you propel our country forward. And that's how you build a stable economy. So there's really almost no issue uh, that people care about that does not, that's not impacted by the climate crisis. And it's so important that everyone from voters to community leaders, to politicians, to whomever is sitting in the White House, understand those far reaching impacts. Because again, we're not just talking about polar bears and rising water levels, which is what for so long the climate movement was focused on. We are talking about people dying right now and people getting poisoned by their the air in their communities and getting people getting poisoned by the water they're drinking. Climate power has picked up traction online. As the organization's website states, quote, the conversations that will influence how we tackle the climate crisis are largely happening online. That was the case before the current situation where obviously campaigns and work has had to go into the digital forum. But particularly the communities that are affected and the movement, the groundswell among young people, has come from their work online. At the same time, though, we've seen how social media has been used in a corrupting way to spread disinformation, misinformation, intentionally and unintentionally by social media users. How does Climate Power seek to win this debate on social media with that in mind? I think there's really... Going digital helps you reach individuals who might not consume news the way that um, people were traditionally communicating about climate. So we're trying to reach people where they live and with voices they recognize. We have an amazing group of surrogates who are going into communities that they came from or who are a representative of communities to talk about why climate matters. And we're trying to reach people where they live, whether that's TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's the mommy blogs, it's um, you know publications that might traditionally lean into entertainment or community or culture news, but we're trying to pitch and get in front of their audiences climate news and climate political news. So not that the pandemic hasn't changed what we're planning on doing, but the idea of going everywhere and speaking to everyone is at the core center of our mission and doing it in a culturally competent way, which does help connect with new audiences who might not be thinking uh, about the climate in their everyday lives. But you do have to attend to uh, disinformation, which is one of the reasons Climate Power has been pushing so aggressively against the Facebook loophole, for example. Right now, Facebook will allow misinformation, disinformation, and what I will call outright lies to be posted on their platform under a loophole. They deem it opinion, and then you can lie. You don't have to say we're backed uh, by the Koch Foundation, which is pretty much a big oil checkbook. So no wonder we're saying that climate change isn't real or that clean energy jobs aren't great because they're being funded by big oil. 
And you can't uh, let that stand when you're trying to fight against disinformation and misinformation. Facebook is a mammoth platform that has so much influence in how everyday people consume news and consume information. And if they're letting lies and misinformation run rampant on their platform, that's a problem. And that shouldn't be happening, which is so we've organized a coalition of incredibly diverse organizations, green organizations, democracy organizations, voting rights organizations, to push the Facebook advisory or oversight council to weigh in on this issue. This oversight board was created for this exact purpose, but right now they're absolutely letting down their responsibility by not starting their work until late fall, which to me means after the 2020 election. But this board was announced two years ago. They've been doing a press tour. They got to get to work. They have to go and call a spade a spade and say, that's a lie. You know, there's the old refrain, we can argue about our opinions all day, but a fact's a fact. And if you're Facebook and you say that you care about climate change and you say you care about being a good corporate citizen in our democracy, then you have to do the work to back that up, which is so that's really a huge focus to us to fight disinformation. Uh, we also have a very fun feature on our website. Every time Trump lies uh, about climate or energy or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal, we're tracking that to make sure that it's readily available to individuals to know every time he's, we call it the BS tracker. Uh, so every time he's, you know, just not telling the truth, which for Trump happens every minute, but in one week, for example, we calculated that 30% of the time he was speaking publicly, it was lying about climate. Uh, and I think that helps push out the at least facts about disinformation. One of the areas where this anti-environmental agenda has been pushed by has been individuals who've been members of the Trump administration, sometimes factual, sometimes not factual, the debates that they've made. And Climate Power recently shared a video of Senator Elizabeth Warren highlighting the ways Donald Trump has, quote, put polluters over people, labeling him as, quote, the most anti-science and anti-environment president our nation has ever known. You mentioned earlier how 2020 is a make or break election here. How concerned are you by the conversation that's taken place in this election cycle, or arguably in some sides of the aisle, lack of conversation that's taken place on the issue of tackling the environment? Well, it's not, it's not hard to see why Trump is putting big oil and polluters over people. This is, these are his buddies. This is, these are the individuals who fund his campaigns. Um, and these are the individuals he's employed. So it's really understandable in so many ways why the president and the vice president are putting polluters front and center. But that also does create so many issues because we have to think about those long lasting impacts. But what's a positive um, in how vociferously they lie and how bombastically they distort the fact is that it's starting to become a little bit unbelievable. We had a poll in the field in late June, early July, and one of the most surprising findings of that survey was every time Trump goes in about, you know, 
the Green New Deal is going to ban hamburgers and you're not going to be able to drive a car and you'll get arrested for taking an airplane. He's really undermining himself because voters, and this is GOP persuadable leaning voters to uh, youth voters who I don't think are as persuadable towards Trump, uh, they're finding it to be really unbelievable. And instead of uh, getting you know, his hooks into those voters, they're seeing it as corrupt. They, they're seeing it as, um, as greedy. And so the more he talks about climate, the better situation it is to really aggressively push back against what he's saying. Um, so would I appreciate it if the president stopped lying and stopped uh, pushing out disinformation on climate? Absolutely. But in a political sense, he is making it easier to tell the truth about climate and its importance because he's lying so much about it. And that is, um, you know, that's going to put people off, which is great uh, overall for truth and democracy, uh, et cetera. Um, it just, you know, it, it was so stark that when voters saw the message we tested, which is essentially a President Trump speech on climate, they came back and their dominant response was, these folks are lying, they are dishonest, they are untrustworthy. And these are words that the survey respondents uh, came up with themselves, they weren't fed that. So I don't necessarily think it's a great political strategy for Trump to keep lying about the environment, especially as we are having one of the most active summers uh, for climate, we're already at a record-breaking hurricane season. We're already seeing record-breaking fires, record-breaking heat. So he can go out there and say, this isn't a problem. But I think the people living in Arizona and Colorado who are living with the realities or Florida or Georgia might disagree and might just begin to see through his tactics uh, and they how they ring hollow. America is currently in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. Individuals are struggling to make ends meet due to the economic shutdown it's brought. But while Congress has been reluctant to give further financial support to individuals, it's willingly handed out $50 million of taxpayers' money to oil, gas, and coal companies. How does Climate Power respond to a Congress that in a situation like this is still seeking to fund those industries? And how do you convince politicians that it's time to stop pumping more money into these industries and to start readjusting the environmental agenda in America to reflect a forward-looking, environmentally friendly agenda with climate power supports? Absolutely. You have to stop giving giveaways to big oil. We've been doing this for decades, and what has what has that brought for the American people? What has that brought for families who are working to make ends meet? What has that brought for people who have health uh, problems because of pollution? Absolutely nothing. This has been a dramatically bad policy written because big oil writes really big checks to members of Congress and to candidates running for governorships and the White House and Senate seats, uh, there's no reason to be propping up an industry that does not 
uh, that actively fuels health problems and actively fuels the environmental challenges we're facing. And in the uh, case of Chevron, got caught red-handed trying to uh, fuel racial discontent uh, by after the George Floyd murder and the, with the Black Lives Matter movement by saying, uh, by trying to pitch stories uh, in the press, really sowing disconnect between uh, climate activists and the Black Lives Matter movement. So when you have all, all of this mounds of evidence that this, this is not an industry that's necessarily putting people over profits. In fact, they're going to do whatever possible to amp up their products at the expense of people. That's not an industry our government should be subsidizing anymore. What you're talking about with the, the money is those PPP loans, which were supposed to go to small businesses. That's a great use of relief and recovery money, helping small businesses who are the backbone of the American economy uh, support themselves and keep people on payroll. It's a real question of why did oil and gas industries uh, who have massive streams of res uh, revenue, how did they qualify for that? And even if they were technically able to do it, what special privileges in our rules were they given to qualify as small businesses? And look, some of them are honest to God small businesses, but a lot of them are wrapped up in the Chevron and the Exxon web. And I don't think those get anyone thinks those qualify as small businesses. So we have to cut off the oil and gas CEOs, people who are making millions and millions of dollars um, from the government funds and start investing that money in clean energy jobs and clean energy investments, which would benefit all people versus uh, just the folks who collect those uh, big oil checks. We've heard individuals, namely those on the right, who criticise policies such as the Green New Deal who've warned it's too costly. How do you believe that we overcome that commonly used political battering ram against uh, environmentally friendly policies, that they are too costly, uh, that there aren't these proposals in place to fund them, etc., that I'm sure climate power is all too commonly familiar with hearing? Well, I, you have to look at it in two ways. One, the price tag that Republicans love to throw around has been thoroughly debunked. Uh, even the author of it said, I'm not totally sure how I got to these numbers. Politico um, and other news organizations have said that, that that number doesn't exist. And you have to also look at the cost of inaction. Take Arizona, for example, a state that right now is suffering from extreme heat. They've had, had 11 climate disasters in the past decade, and that's cost the state $89 billion in damages. Now, if we pass bold climate action, am I saying storms aren't going to happen? No, but they're going to be not as severe and the impact will not be as large. So you have to look at one, what is what is true and the the numbers that the Republicans throw out about the Green New Deal are just, just not true. Uh, you also have to look at what the Green New Deal or any bold policy uh, action, uh, we're not, we're not a policy organization, so we're not here to say this legislation should be passed or not. But if you look at any transformative climate legislation, it would create jobs. It would very uh, much likely have a return benefit for investment in infrastructure. So 
I think it's important to call truth on why Republicans don't like the Green New Deal and, quite frankly, why Republicans don't want any action on climate. It does not benefit their campaign donors. It does not benefit uh, their bottom lines. And it scares them a little bit because what happens when people are no longer dependent on industries that are polluting us they have to they have to work for the people and that's not necessarily something the republican party at this moment is most known for well joe biden has outlined an environmental plan that goes a lot further than people thought donald trump's not taken similar steps what would you like to see both parties commit to and what time frame would you like them to implement those policies after they take office? I think both candidates, all candidates, Republican, Democrat, need to immediately say what their climate plans are. This is a crisis. We are living it currently, and you cannot wait to make your commitments to the American people. If you're asking for someone's vote, you should pony up on how you're going to protect their future. And What's really interesting is uh, you are seeing more candidates coming forward with that. Um, most of them do happen to be to be Democrats, uh, but this is something that Republicans should lean into as well. These are voters who are up to grabs for both parties, and they want bold climate action. And as for when they should start, I think we should have started 5, 10, 15 years ago really aggressively. So this has to be a day one priority for whether it is the Trump administration that's reelected or it is a Biden-Harris administration. Uh, you can't put this on the back burner. And that is one of our core functions as well, is making sure candidates know this can't just be a campaign promise. This has to be something that you live when elected, if elected. And you have to do it boldly and you have to do it uh, in a way that really transforms the current system because that's how you fight back against a crisis. Finally, where can people find more about your organization and the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So there's some great ways to get involved. You can go to our website, which is climatepower2020.org, and you can sign up to be a climate influencer. These are everyday people who care about climate and who want to be part of this solution and who want to take an active role in the election. So if you go to our website and click the stories page, you can submit your own climate story of why this is so important to you. Uh, and you can sign up to be a climate influencer and take an active role in our campaign, which I think is so phenomenal in terms of grassroots organizing and making sure this campaign is really truly built by the people who are being impacted. Uh, and of course, you can interact with us on social media. You said it at the beginning, but our Twitter handle is Climate Power. But you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Power 2020. Uh, and we actively are looking for grassroots organizers and influencers and people who want to be involved. So this can be a really, this can be a campaign powered by the people. Lauren French, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. That was Climate Power 2020's Senior Director of Communications, Lauren French. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Lauren N. French and Climate Power at Climate Power and climatepower2020.org. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>